Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dr. Catherine Brown, lecturer in art history and visual culture at Loughborough University. We will discuss her article, Disappearing Acts, Fictitious Capital, Aesthetic Atheism, and the Art World, which is published in the Journal of Visual Art Practice. So welcome to the show, Catherine. Hi, Brian. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about this. The, the the article touches on a lot of things that I have spent a lot of time thinking about myself in my own scholarship and art practice. And I was really delighted to see it and get a chance to read it and now to talk to you. For listeners who might not be so involved in the art world, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between art, money, and the art market, and and how it's changed over time. Sure. I mean, that's a, a huge topic, but it's absolutely central to what I'm getting at in this article. I think the main thing that I'm interested in, and, and the problem that I'm interested in, is on the one hand, thinking about art as something that's intrinsically valuable. So something that we preserve, that we respond to emotionally, imaginatively, cognitively, something that we enjoy, that we want on our wall. Um, so all of that, all of those qualities that we associate with the aesthetic value of the artwork, and then art as an asset class. So art as something that's financially valuable. We trade it, we invest in it, we track its exchange value. And I'm interested in the way in which that aesthetic value and the financial value are coming into conflict. Now, you know, you, you might say that this is something that's that's been around forever. We've always been interested in the one on the one hand in, in art as something that we preserve and art on the other hand as something that we value as a financial commodity. But it seems to me that at the moment, the top end of the art market is getting so big and is attracting so much interest that we might now be looking through the artwork and actually watching the money. I mean, just, just think about some of the prices. Um, Leonardo's Salvator Mundi selling for $450 million at Christie's in 2017. Um, paintings by Willem de Kooning selling for around $300 million or $350 million. Uh, even artists with us today, artists producing artworks today, like um, David Hockney or Gerhard Richter, whose works sell upwards of $50 million. So on the one hand, we've got, you know, this 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 thing that we cherish aesthetically. And on the other hand, these prices are ballooning in such a way that I think people are getting interested in the market more than the art. Well, you start your paper with a really interesting anecdote or example, which I personally love, and I'd love for you to share it with listeners because I don't think enough people have heard about it. It's the story of the Peau de Lure or the, the Bearskin Club. I love it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it was and what you think it means about the development of the art world. Well, you're right. The the peau de l'ours, the, the bearskin, it's, it's a wonderful moment in the history of the European art market. So you, you have this guy, André Lavelle. He is a, um, he's a, an investor. He's looking at art. He's trying to think about how to, how to make money out of art as a commodity. And he gets together a, a group of friends and they start buying up avant-garde work. Now that, that's the that's the first interesting point. They're looking at work that's being produced by new artists at the beginning of the 20th century. 
So we're talking about artists such as Matisse, uh, as Picasso, um, all of these, these, these people who are uh, producing the, the latest and most challenging artwork. And they start buying up this art. They buy it sometimes direct from artist studios. They also buy from art dealers. And they hold on to it. Uh, and they hold on to it until 1914, when there is this big sale at the major Parisian auction house, the Hôtel Drouot. And, you know, this was a risky thing. You know, would anyone buy this stuff? Because let's face it, avant-garde art at the beginning of the 20th century in Europe was, was very controversial. Um, people weren't sure it was going to sell. But it did. And they made a huge profit. And not only did they make a, a huge profit, I mean, keep, keep in mind that this was a time when there wasn't an artist's resale right um, enshrined in law, as there is in, in many countries now. So the Podolos Consortium actually gave, uh, I think it was around 20% of the proceeds to the artists whose works they sold. So making them look like good guys uh, and actually deflecting any um, sort of negative publicity from what they did. And for me, the interesting thing about that, uh, I think there are several interesting things. First of all, there was, I think, a, a sort of inbuilt element of hedging in what they did. They didn't just invest in one artist. They invested in a whole bunch of artists. So if one artist's stock had gone up and someone else's had gone down, you know, that, that would balance out in the overall sales. The second interesting thing for me was the way in which they couched the sale. They were kind of embarrassed. They didn't want to look like investors. So in the sales catalogue, uh, the front bit of which was actually written by André Level, Level said, look, this is, this is a bunch of friends. We'd all got together to buy art we liked. Um, we've lived with it, we've enjoyed it, and now we're selling it. You know, that, that wasn't quite true. Um, you know, this was an investment from the very beginning. Um, and then the third thing that interests me in this spectacular sale is the fact that it's spectacular. The Hôtel Drouot was packed. People were turning up not just to see the art, but to see the, the exchange of money. So this was, this was art sales as entertainment, and it got a huge amount of publicity. Um, and, and this is really inventing art as an asset class. And that's why I think it's such a, a crucial moment both in the history of European modernist art and indeed in the history of the art market. I mean, one of the things I really liked the, about the way you used that story is that, I mean, I was aware of it before I read your article, but I hadn't thought of it in the way that you framed it and the way in which that moment seems to have captured so many kind of socioeconomic features and sort of forms of rhetoric that are still present in the art market today. Yeah. And I think one of the, you know, for me, one of the important things about it is that idea that you know, here's a group of people who are portraying themselves as real aesthetic risk takers. Where where are art adventurers? Would our would our strategy pay off? And the answer is yes, it paid off, but it paid off in financial terms, which is the interesting thing. So it's almost as though um, the credentials, the art credentials of these works, increased. And this is, I think, the interesting point because it sold well. And that's where we start coming into this mm, difficult tension between finance, uh, financial value and aesthetic value, because 
the question for audiences is what is it that you are actually valuing about the artwork? Something that's intrinsic to it as an art object or something that attaches to its financial value? So one of the concepts you use in the paper to analyze this question is the idea of aesthetic atheism. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that concept is, sort of where it came from, how it was initially used, how you're using it, and how you think it relates to price. Yeah, um, this was a a little article published by uh, David Carrier in 1988, I think it was. Um, David Carrier is an art critic and philosopher. And in a short article, he debated this idea of of aesthetic atheism. Um, And one of the questions that he was asking was, you know, what do we value about art? Can we believe in the aesthetic value of art in our current um, sort of social, socio-cultural, socio-economic situation. Um, He suggests that the aesthetic atheist is someone who doesn't believe that artworks have value anymore. They don't have the values that we traditionally understand as being aesthetic, so things relating to um, our sensory appreciation of the work, things relating to our experience of of beauty, of, of whatever we see that's intrinsic to that art object. Now, important for Carrier, I think, is the point that aesthetic atheism doesn't mean the negation of all value in relation to art. It doesn't mean to say that art can never have value. What he's suggesting is that there is a risk that we might lose belief in the value of art under the prevailing circumstances of its production, display, and circulation. So he's thinking about the way in which artworks relate to the institutional framework of the whole art world, museums, um, art sales, art criticism, and so on. So I wanted to take up that idea and ask are we aesthetic atheists? Have we become aesthetic atheists? Do we no longer believe in values attaching to art? Because we're increasingly focused on the financial value of art. And actually, Brian, you know, I want to flip this round and, and ask you a question, because I was, I was actually having a look at your uh, article from 2019, your SEC no action request letter in the Creighton Law Review. And you say in that article, this is a little statement, um, where you say, Nobody invests $120,000 in a work of art unless they expect to turn a profit somehow. And that makes me wonder if you're not a model of an aesthetic atheist. (laughs) Probably true, or an aesthetic anarchist anyway. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, the point is, uh, you know, you might be right. I hope you're wrong. I hope that people would would invest $120,000 in a work of art because they value it for what what it is because they want to see it on the, you know, on the wall of their home or because they want to put it into a museum or whatever. However, the point you're making um, is a good one and it kind of backs up what, where I, what I'm getting at here. Because if we, you know, going back to that Paul de Lourdes example, you know, if people are coming along and looking at the money, uh, if people are thinking about art increasingly as an asset class, then what are we looking at? Are we looking through the object simply to its financial value? 
Uh, and in that case, does the art, the art object, the actual artifact, really cease to exist in any meaningful form? Because we're just looking at it as a kind of piece of evidence in a history of a narrative of capital. Well, among other things, you, I mean, I think almost inevitably refer to Walter Benjamin's famous article, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, and this distinction between, or rather, this idea of the role that the art unique kind of aura of the art object plays in understanding the meaning of art. I mean, I, I wonder how you think that relates to the kind of financialization of, of art and the kind of transformation that you're describing of objects into prices. Yeah. Well, I mean, the question is, I guess, does art really have an aura anymore? You know, this is where I'm getting at, and this is what I'm trying to to understand. You know, what it is that we're valuing about about the object. Um, are we replacing that traditional notion of the aura with a kind of halo of dollar bills? And if we are, what's the role of the museum? What is the museum preserving? Is it preserving artifacts uh, that we value in and of themselves, or is it really uh, now an institution that that collects a bunch of financial instruments. You know, you you can look at some of the ways in which museums and, and their collections or their exhibitions are reported, uh, where people, uh, journalists, art critics, are actually drawing people's attention to the value of the work on show. I find that a very disturbing trend. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not going to a museum to think about how much each artwork is is worth. I'm going there to experience the art. But you know, if, if where I'm going with this idea of aesthetic atheism is true, then what we're looking at really is a, is a, a repository of, you know, of, of, of financial documents. Well, one thing I couldn't help thinking about while reading your article was this idea from economics that one of the most important things that prices do is communicate information. So I mean, I wonder from your perspective, what kind of information do you think prices communicate about art, if anything, and what other kinds of information or ideas or experiences might also be communicated, but not expressed in the form of price? Well, I think you raise a really good point there. And in fact, this is something that, that I've been thinking more about actually in the sequel to this article, uh, where I'm thinking very much about art markets and sources of epistemic authority. Uh, I worry a little bit uh, about the way in which information circulates about art and the way in which it's used to support price. Now, first of all, the first worrying connection is the idea that the best art is the most expensive art. If that's true, then really we've 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 lost the the, the whole game, uh, because then a very small group of people, dealers and auction houses, can actually control and manipulate the market um, by selling, you know, by by propping up the prices of art, by selling it, and then saying, well, this is the best art, and then all the rest is no good. There are things that follow on from that. Uh, if if dealers and auction houses do sell what becomes known as the best art because it's expensive, 
then that's what people want to see in museums and that's what museums collect. So then the next step is we're thinking really about the shape of our long-term cultural heritage. Uh, So that's problem number two. Problem number three then is this imbrication of money, knowledge and art transaction. And you think about the ways in which um, high-end art dealers are now presenting art. They're really behaving like museums. They host very big shows, uh, shows that uh, often rival museums in their glitziness and in the, the, the kind of works that they show. They create a whole range of information, catalogues, magazines, that is there to prop up the stuff they're selling. They also hire personnel from public museums. So what we're seeing increasingly are people moving from the public sphere into the private sphere. So you see curators now working with and for private gallerists. And then we've also got another phenomenon that's related to that, which is the behaviour of auction houses themselves as they're creating their own bespoke uh, technologies for analysing the art market. So we're getting all of these knowledge resources, all of these epistemic resources really coming within the purview of a small group of agents. And while it looks like it's dispersed, while it looks like we've got magazines, catalogues, you know, public information and all the rest of it, or price indices, it's all coming within the control of the very small group of people. That then props up price, that props up a notion of aesthetic quality, and there we go. We, we've, got, we've got that seamless connection between money and aesthetic quality or money determining aesthetic quality and that being controlled by a very small coterie of private businesses. Well, I, I, I couldn't help but feel that, like, you know, we have this story we tell ourselves about how museums and the kind of culture industry writ large is the driving force bet- behind sort of defining aesthetic quality and telling us what we should like and why we should like it. And I couldn't help but feel like reading your paper that, A, maybe that's not true anymore, and B, maybe that was like never really true and that it's always worked the other way around, that it was the market telling museums what to do and what to value. Yeah, it's an interesting historical point to, to, to look into. I think that museums did have uh, more control originally. Uh, I think there was a, a sort of knowledge hierarchy and you know, whereby museums would, would dictate to the general public ideas about value almost I mean and not necessarily in a good way I mean let's face it uh, museums and curators have been responsible for uh, generating very selective histories of art that are that are biased in terms of say gender and and, and race Um, and they certainly were set up as as sources of, of cultural authority but then you're right. I think as the as the art market developed, we had a, a broader system, and I'm thinking sort of from the throughout the 19th century to the present, uh, a much broader uh, set of connoisseurs coming along. Broader in the sense that they are not museum professionals, but they're certainly um, a, a select group of people. 
And, you know, their choices as tastemakers, as collectors, was certainly uh, influential on both the development of art history and the development of our concepts of, of what, what is valuable, what kinds of art are valuable. But then I think in, you know, now in the 21st century, as we've got mega dealers and really an auction house duopoly with uh, Christie's and Sotheby's, I think we've, we've, we've gone to the next level um, in, in terms of where that information and where that power is coming from. And I think that the dealers are now actually influencing mu museums um, in a much more evident and, and powerful way. So, I mean, you can actually see people have, have looked at the number of solo exhibitions dedicated to artists, and this is in, in the US, you know, who, who those artists are represented by in terms of dealers. And it's a very small, um, a small group of dealers who are controlling and, and feeding into those, those exhibitions for really artists who are part of their roster. So I think we're seeing the market and the, the, the public museum uh, world come together in, in, in ways that are, are quite troubling. One of the big debates right now in the United States art market is over the idea of deaccessioning and sort of what kind of ownership interests museums have in the works in their collection and what they can and can't do with them legitimately. And in my experience, that debate, especially from people who object to deaccessioning, is often framed in purely aesthetic terms. I wonder if you think the observations in your article about the role of price ought to also inform how we think about that question. Okay, you've raised a really interesting question there, Brian, about deaccessioning and its, its social and museological function. And I think that it's worth thinking about that even further in the context of uh, our current situation in the, the COVID-19 pandemic, because we've seen new regulations being put out there by the Association of Art Museum Directors that has created um, new opportunities for museums to take works to the market. So museums are now able to use the proceeds from deaccessioned art to pay, for ex to pay for expenses that are associated with the direct care of their collections. And they can also use proceeds to renew and improve their collections, provided that's in keeping with their um, collecting goals. So whereas we used to think of museums and markets coming together in terms of museums, buying things from the market, of course, now we've got museums increasingly taking works to the market. Um, there are lots of social issues around that. You know, some museums think it's very important, and you'll have undoubtedly seen the, the uh, deaccessioning plans by the Baltimore Museum of Art to 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 really diversify its collection um, in important ways. But you know, the, these are these are difficult issues, both socially and historically. So you you see museums being pulled in, I think, in, in different directions, having to both look at the past and then look at the needs of audiences in the present. But I think we've got actually got to keep a close eye on how those proceeds are used. If the proceeds are being used to, uh, you know, as they sometimes are, to, to fund architectural projects, to build a new cafe or whatever, then I think, again, that's, that's a, 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 troubling, um, a troubling development. 
I wonder how you think your observations about the role of price in the art market should inform the way that museums think about what they do and how they think about collecting, displaying, and talking about art. Well, I think that one of the things, what I wanted to do, this sort of brings me back to what I was trying to do with this article, um, was which is to get us to, to think again about what it is that we value about art. I mean, I think that goes back to the, the sort of point about aesthetic atheism as not being a negation of value, but rather a means of thinking about what it is that we do value. So that if we think about what we value in art, then that leads us to think about what we value in the role of the museum, the museum as a preserver of value. Um, so, you know, are, are we looking at the market? Are we aestheticizing the market? Are we enjoying the market, the spectacle of art transactions? Or are we enjoying the art? So, you know, what, what this article was trying to do was to get us to think about um, not just the relationship between museums and the market, but really to think about what the music, what role we want the museum to play. So going back to that notion of atheism, what human needs art serves. So I'm, I'm not trying to pursue some kind of, you know, finance is bad, art is good line. But I think it is important to understand the way in which they're coming together, the way in which they're meeting in the middle and what the consequences of that are for our cultural landscape. Well, Catherine, in closing, the big puzzle for me reading your paper and the thing I'm still really struggling with in thinking about the arguments that you made in it was, I, I mean, I took you to at least at one level be saying, look, the financialization of art in a strange way kind of dematerializes the art object and turns it into a price rather than a thing, which is weird and kind of troubling and in some ways unfortunate, but I also wonder if it doesn't maybe also direct us more to the meaning of the artwork itself. And I guess it makes me wonder how much we need the object anymore. Wow. That's really troubling. <laughs> um, Brian, I'm going to have to ask you to explain what you mean by that, because I mean, if, if we don't, if we don't need the object, then, you know, where's our what 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 are we left with i know that you've also thought very carefully um uh, about the dematerialization of art and you've looked back to conceptual art from the 19 sort of 60s and 70s um and you've thought about ways in which art trades simply as a kind of uh, you know, certificate of ownership in an idea um and uh, the fractional ownership of an artist's celebrity or goodwill um, that's certainly part of, you know, the narrative. And that was a strategy that artists themselves experimented with very, very strongly in the, um, you know, from the, certainly from the 50s and early 60s onwards. I'm more worried about how that's actually impacting on artifacts, you know, things themselves. So, I mean, on the one hand, you're talking about artists who were deliberately working in the arena of conceptual art. I'm actually thinking about the implications of that argument for artists who produce things, paintings, sculptures, whatever. 
And my concern is that art is trading in an increasingly dematerialized way where, you know, buyers are looking at JPEGs, things are being sold online. Dealers are also, you know, setting up digital sales rooms. Where's the thing itself? So we've we've got that aspect of it. We've also got art disappearing into free ports, into storage. Who knows where the Salvatore Mundi is? You know, again, there's $450 million being spent on something that, that may be on someone's mall, that may be in a free port, so i.e. nowhere. So, we, you know, we don't know. Um, we've also got artists, of course, who are responding to that idea, creating objects that then are erased or that disappear or that self-destruct. So in all of these cases, we've got things we seem to be losing the thing itself, the artwork. And I wonder if, as audiences, we're not complicit with that. You know, that brings me back to my point about looking through the object to its underlying financial value. And I think if we lose the object, if we lose the thing itself, we do lose something. We do lose something from our culture and from our museum culture. So I'm trying, I'm interested in thinking about how we come back to, to the object as opposed to looking through it to its financial value. Mm, yeah, no, I love it. And, and I, I couldn't agree more, uh, but it, it, I think you posed the question in a really interesting way in your paper, and it's a very provocative sort of look at what we actually do when we do art in the art market today. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Catherine. Thanks, Brian. Great talking to you.
Don't need no slate, but the people of the states don't want it. Nick, und den Baden, 